We're going to do something. Um, first, we're going to read Proverbs 1, but the actual text of the sermon is from Proverbs 17. So if you could, you may want to stick your finger in there or just hold the spot. So, just as a little introduction, and this is a sermon I actually took from uh, Pastor Ian Wright of Covenant OPC in Orland Park, Illinois. He's in our presbytery. If you remember, um, for those of you who were here for Pastor Morialli's installation, he, uh, I think he gave the charge to the congregation, So I remember correctly. So to start with, what's a proverb? You have to have a definition of everything. So since we're starting, we're kind of jumping into the middle of this book. We're going to use Proverbs 17 as our text today. We'll briefly start with a, a definition of a proverb. Defined in the dictionary, a proverb is a brief popular saying that gives advice about how people should live or express a belief that is generally thought to be true. Well, that as a definition is certainly accurate, though as a believer that views scripture as infallible and inerrant, it's a definition that probably doesn't quite fit how we would look at Proverbs in the Bible. So I'd suggest we change the definition to this. A brief saying that gives advice about how Christians should live and expresses instruction on how or what we are to believe from God. Now we haven't had very many sermons from, from, S, uh, from Proverbs here at SGRC. In fact, when I looked through our sermon audio account, I, I couldn't find any of them. So as an introduction, we're going to read Proverbs 1 through 7, or Proverbs 1, verse 1 through 7. Last week, you recall, we read, uh, if you were here, we read Proverbs 2, the first 15 verses is our Old Testament reading. And this passage in Proverbs 1 is very similar. If you have an ESV Bible, the heading in Proverbs 1 is the beginning of knowledge, and Proverbs 2, it's the, the value of wisdom. So they're, very, they're kind of parallel passages. Proverbs as a book is very different um, from what we usually preach on, because while it's still obviously scripture, there's not a lot of arguments sustained like you see in Paul's epistles. You don't see long arguments that go out over chapters where you build up and build up. There's a lot of standalone verses. So last week, Pastor Morialli pre- preached on the first eight verses of James. So this week, we're going to do it a little different. We're just going to use one very short verse. Okay. So if you would, please stand. And we'll start in Proverbs 1. Hear now the word of God. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand the words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands gain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. And now turn to Proverbs 17. This is the text that we'll look at today. 17 verse 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. May the Lord bless the reading of this word. Please be seated. Pray. Our God and Father in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
you've graciously condescended to us in your word, your special revelation in scripture. As we approach your word, we pray for grace to your servant to bring this word that it may be effectually used to glorify your name, build your church, and call your people to you. We pray for those who hear this word to be attentive, that they may take it into their hearts, learn from it in a way that also glorifies your name and sanctifies those you have called to the church. All this we plead on the merits of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. When we look at Proverbs, and this is an important truth for us to grasp, especially for parents, for those of us who the Lord has blessed with children, we seek to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And the scripture tells us they're different from children of unbelievers. They're holy and set apart. They're not like children of unbelievers. We cling to those promises in the church. So knowing that, do we stand back from the word of God and think, well, God is sovereign in the salvation of our children, and I can't save my children. That's certainly true. But as we consider this proverb and work our way through it, I hope you'll be encouraged that God is training our children through the faithful study of the word of God. And we want our children to understand the wisdom of God's word. We can go back to that uh, beginning of the book of Proverbs where we just read. Chapter 1, where the father is telling his son, listen to me, I want you to understand certain things. And he leads them through to the wisdom of God, tells them why he should seek the wisdom of God. We turn to the book of Proverbs with an understanding that it is the wisdom found there that a parent can use to train up a child in godliness. That we desire our children to will be godly and will love the Lord. We'll desire them with all their heart, their strength, and their mind. We might even dare to hope that they'll love God a little more than we do. We certainly wouldn't want them to love God less than we do. So as you turn to the book of Proverbs, we see it as providing wisdom, particularly in training our children. We turn to this particular proverb and we ask ourselves, how might we be able to give instruction to our children as to how they should receive this particular bit of wisdom from Proverbs? So before we look at it in greater detail and what it has to say, I want to examine with you what we call anthropology. Okay? It's not an everyday word. It's a word theologians use and philosophers use. It's just a fancy word to say, well, what do we think about mankind? What do we, in general, how do we believe? What do we think about man's character and nature? In general, there might be two broad possibilities. First, man is basically good, right? That's a very popular philosophy as to man. He's basically good, but it's circumstances that led him to do bad things. And from time to time, he'll do evil or bad things because... He was just in a bad position or bad circumstances. And maybe society has oppressed him or led him into doing things that are evil. But basically men are good and we expect them to behave properly and fairly and decently. Last fall there was a story in the New York Times, August of 2018. There's a young couple from America. They quit their jobs and they were going to go out cycling. They are going to cycle around the world. They started in South Africa. They made it to day 369. They got to Tajikistan. And they were murdered. And tragically, one is almost tempted to laugh that in seeking to prove the basic goodness of man, they thought they were going to go along the way and everybody was going to be helpful and bring them along and make it easy, give them aid where they needed, they wouldn't have to carry much. But in seeking to prove how good man was, they were murdered. Right? Well, what does that tell you? It tells you one thing. They didn't prove what they went to, sought to prove. That not only are men not basically good, 
because there certainly are people along the way that did help them, but there were also some that murdered them. They took their lives. Now, that doesn't necessarily prove that men in general, and all men are basically good, are not basically good. It doesn't prove that. It does prove that some men are not basically good. And it doesn't mean we can draw out a general inference to be, that, to be the overarching principle that we believe about man. But certainly they failed in what they set out to do. Well, that's one side, that men are basically good. Men are basically good, and it's just circumstances that cause them to act badly. The other possibility is that men are basically bad. That there is something in our character that's obviously flawed. Of course, you might have thought about this from a Christian point of view, and you know in your own heart, you've probably already come to a conclusion about these two possibilities. Are men basically good, in which case, what accounts for evil in this world? Or are men basically bad, and it is only because God lays his hand upon society and individuals to restrain evil, the evil that's in their hearts, so that we don't live in a world that's impossible to dwell in. But we do encounter bad things from time to time. I'm sure you might have a list of things that you've encountered in your own life where you've been hurt unfairly by others. But you probably also have a list of kindnesses that strangers have shown to you that you've been surprised for, surprised by. So as we consider our anthropology, what we understand about the nature of man, it can't be answered by particular events, drawing it out or extrapolating it to a universal principle. What is a universal experience? If all the apples that I ever have looked at have some rottenness to them, then I might legitimately assume all apples are rotten. Well, let me ask you another question. What parent, and if you're not a parent, you may have encountered this in another setting, what parent has not seen a child or even an adult playing the blame game. He started it. She started it. It's not something that every one of us, isn't it something that every one of us has encountered at some point, at least with small children. Now it would be childish to always say, well, he started it or she started it. So as adults, we dress that up a little bit, right? We come up with a little nicer way to say it. We couch it in different language, but it really is the same thing. It's not my fault, it's his fault, right? We just find another way to express exactly the same idea, which is pointing the finger at someone else. I think we can all probably remember a time, a sinful time in our own lives, where we've been on either the receiving end of it, or we've basically been the one that said, he started it. We've been on the end of pointing that finger at someone else. Well, who gave our children instruction that when you find yourself in a tough situation, when something's been done to you, or you've done something wrong, that your response should be, just blame someone else. I can't imagine any of us or any parent ever who sat down with their children and said, now when you get in trouble, when you're at school, and someone blames you for something that's gone bad or something you've done, this is what I think you should do. This is what I want you to do. Here's how you're going to get out of it. Point the finger at someone else. What, what parent had that conversation with their child ever? Is there a mother or father that ever told their kid that? And yet, is there a child that has ever not used that rationale when they got in trouble? Now, birds build nests by instinct, and bees gather pollen and make honey by instinct. And as we can see, something within ourselves that is on that same lines. It's the instinct that we find when we find ourselves accused of something. Our natural response is to find someone else who we can pass the blame to. And the question is, is such an attitude morally neutral? 
Or will we find something in God's word that tells us that's contrary, that that's against God's words, that that passing the blame is sinful? Are we in sin when we try to pass the blame? I want to look at that question in three different ways. Trying to avoid blame, trying to shift the focus to someone else, and then how it inevitably leads to escalation, makes a bad situation worse. So first, try to avoid the blame. Here's the problem with us for that immediately. It's an unwillingness that I'm to take responsibility for what I've done. Right? I'm so busy trying to find someone else to blame that I'm not taking responsibility for my part in what happened. And maybe in your own mind, and it may indeed be completely accurate to say that the other person is at greater fault. But just because the other person is at greater fault doesn't mean you haven't done something that's blameworthy. That you didn't do something yourself that caused the problem. So when you're rushed to find someone else to blame, what you're saying is, I'm not prepared to examine my own heart. I know I may have contributed to the situation, but I don't really want to look at what I did. I may have punched him in the nose, but he had it coming, right? It was his fault. His face accidentally collided with my hand. Well, never mind. I know my hand was moving at the time, but it really was his fault. And if you look at it really closely, you'd obviously see that, that it was him, not me. I'm really the one that's the victim here. Does that sound familiar? It sounds ridiculous, right? But we say things that in a different language, in a different setting, we, we believe in our own hearts for the moment, sinfully, that it's not our fault, that it's the other guy's fault. If you know your Bible, it should sound really familiar. The first couple to ever need marriage counseling, they were full of pointing blame at other people. Sin is such a fast-acting poison. The taste of that forbidden fruit is still on their taste buds. God is speaking to them, and now they're playing the blame game. Don't look at me, says Adam. It's her fault. She, she gave me that fruit, and, and I ate it. And by the way, she, you know, she's the one you gave to me in the first place, so really it's Eve. If you want to blame anyone, blame Eve. And if that's not good enough, maybe you should look at yourself, because if you hadn't given me her, I wouldn't be in this position. Right? Isn't that kind of what Adam said to God? It's couched in different language. That's essentially what he said. You know, Adam is looking at Eve and he's saying, blame it on her, it's her fault. God, it's, it's her fault. I didn't do anything. She didn't really, she's faulty goods. I mean, you gave her to me. It's, who's to blame for that? And what does Eve do? Eve says, well, it's a serpent. You see how it continues? You just widen out the circle. You find as many people as you can to include and put the blame on. Because Practical Theology 101 says there's always enough blame to go around. We'll find other people we can pin it on. We'll make sure the attention is deflected away from me. <coughs> what did we see here? It's an avoidance strategy. I can point to other people and their faults and their failings, especially if their faults or failings are more obvious than mine or bigger than mine, then I don't need to do the difficult work of examining my own heart. I can even feel self-righteously offended when I perceive the injury done to me is much greater and my response is within reason. I'm really offended you'd even talk to me about this because obviously I didn't do that much to this situation, right? You should be looking at that other guy. It's his fault. The other person has done so much evil. And we take those instances when we're being held accountable and we look for ways to avoid taking any blame on ourselves. There's a failure to give an honest response, reluctance to look closely at ourselves. 
we try to shore up and create our own self-righteousness so we can continue to believe that we're basically good. And the problem really is the other person. But at what cost? So secondly then, pointing out someone else's faults. Because if I do that, I can feel much better about myself if I can show the other person was really a lot worse than me. I'm not so bad when you compare me to somebody else. This is, this is the person that started. And if you look over at her or at him, if you look closely, you won't be so bothered about what I've done wrong. I have an excuse for acting badly. He doesn't. After all, he started it. It's really his fault. Take a look at him. Look, take a look more closely at him than at me. He's really the one with the problem here. So we avoid taking blame again. And thirdly, it starts badly and it ends even worse. This is the gift that just keeps on giving. Our instinctive response is to blame that other person, to find other people to blame. But that means that person's instinctive response is to blame you back. Because if they can't find anyone to blame, they're going to blame you. So you have two people blaming each other, and it's just a downward spiral. And who of us hasn't experienced that before in a, in a relationship? So the book of Proverbs likens that to letting out water. You've probably all heard the story of the little Dutch boy that found the leak in the dike. The funny thing, that's actually not a Dutch story. It's written by a woman, um, an American woman named Mrs. Do Mrs. Dodge. That sounds kind of Dutch, and we'll just go with it. I'm Dutch, and I like to make fun of Dutch people. Mm -hmm. So there's a crack in the dike, and it's hold this dike is holding back the sea. And the little boy comes along, and he sees this crack, and he puts his finger in the hole to stop it from opening up so it doesn't become worse. And someone comes along and helps him, and he saves the village. It's a wonderful story. doesn't appear to have any basis at all in truth, but it's a good story. So we think about how we should respond when someone has done something bad to us, and we go back to our proverb. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. There's just a trickle to begin with, right? And now you have a choice to make at that point. We can retaliate in kind... And then the other person retaliates back and it escalates. So we hit back again. And before we know it, there's blood on the carpets and there's Christmas ornaments flying everywhere and the parents come running in. They're saying, stop, stop. Quit hitting each other. Who started this? And what straight away does that child say? Or the adult, if they, they're the one getting in trouble. He started it. Well, what does the book of Proverbs say? It says, don't let it continue. Stop. Stop it. Right then and there, stop it. Don't allow the situation to escalate. It's a bit like pulling the pin on a hand grenade, tossing it back and forth and waiting to see what's going to happen. Stop it before something explodes and it becomes irreparable. The wisdom of God's word says, put the pin back in the hand grenade. Don't allow that small crack to become a life-threatening flood. It says, stop it. Simply quit. It couldn't be any blunter. Quit before the quarrel breaks out. There's a sketch by Bob Newhart. I'm kind of dating myself. There's probably not everybody in here knows who Bob Newhart is. He was an actor. He played a psychologist. There's a sketch he does where he's playing the part of a, a counselor, and he, this woman comes in, and she tells him all of his problems. And 
he listens and he waits and she gets through her whole list of problems and he says, okay, I've got an answer for you. He says, I, I can fix all of these things for you. He says, get out a piece of paper. Write this down. Don't want you to forget it. He says, stop it. And she looks at him and he says, stop it. He goes, yeah, just stop it. He says, okay, well, what about this stop it? And every problem she brings up, he says, stop it. Don't. It's exactly what the word of God is saying here. Stop it. When you're playing that blame game, don't even allow it to start. It's like water that's about to break the dam. It's going to flood your life and cause all kinds of damage in your life. Damage you probably won't be able to repair. Quit. Stop it before the quarrel breaks out. And the counsel of God's word is wise. It will bless those who follow it. At this point, you don't even need to be a believer to follow the wisdom of God's word. Right? Even the unbeliever would benefit from that advice. It's wisdom we can give to a non-believer. Don't engage in the blame game. Quit. Stop it. Before it gets out of control, before it becomes something that causes a great deal of damage. But this isn't a lecture. And it isn't just a lecture about morality. God is moral, of course, so we expect there to be a moral aspect to the teaching of God's word. But you see what God is doing here for us as Christians, for those who would follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to make application of this to our children and to our own lives as well. One of the things we should instruct our children, or you will, that you will encounter other children who will have failings, and they'll all have failings, but just because they've done something wrong doesn't mean doesn't mean that you're entitled to do whatever you like in response. The fact that someone else started it does not mean you can continue it. Quit before the quarrel breaks out. So as we examine this and as we examine the wisdom of God's words, what are we being told? Examine your own heart. If part of the problem is a reluctance to examine your own heart, then stop right then and there and question yourself. To what extent am I responsible for this quarrel? I may not have started it in my mind. I'm, I'm innocent. I may not have started it, but I did continue it. And perhaps I did so in such a way that was less than helpful. And what is the wisdom of God's word? Examine your heart. Take responsibility. Break that cycle. Stop it then and there. And this edges us towards something else, something that's far more significant and profound. What we're trying to tell our children, if they're engaged with a fight, with a cousin or a playmate, if who's done something wrong to them, don't start blaming, don't start giving as good as you get. That's not the way to handle it. But here, let's think, <clears throat> let's think of this as our responsibility as parents. If we're going to set us... Set, that as a standard of God's wisdom before our children, then that has to be a measure that we live by also. We didn't need to tell our children to blame the other person because that was instinctive. We did it automatically. You know in your own heart how easy it is to find blame in someone else. A person who has a splinter in his eye can walk along and point out... <clears throat> when you, I'm sorry. When you, you can walk along with a log in your eye and see the splinter in someone else's eye. You can see his problem more clearly than your own, even when your problem is much greater. And you know that in your heart. You know how true it is. You know how true God's word is to your own situations. That the same sort of response is after the flesh whenever we're provoked. And the sort of response whenever someone challenges us. 
Because we don't want to do the difficult work of examining our own heart, finding where I was to blame. Instead, we want to find excuses for avoiding doing that and by looking at the faults that we find in others. As King Lear said, I'm a man more sinned against than sinning. We look at the other person and say, yes, I didn't do everything perfectly right, but I'm more sinned against than sinning, we tell ourselves. Stop and think here. We need to stop and think and examine our own hearts. If we're going to raise up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and give them instruction from the wisdom of God's words that tells us don't try to avoid the difficult work of examining your own heart. If you're going to tell your son and daughter, examine your own heart, then that's something we need to start with as well. You can't tell your child to examine their own heart when you aren't willing to do it yourself. So what is the proverb telling us to do? Not just for children, but moms and dads, for ministers and elders, for members of congregation. Self-examination, a willingness to admit you're wrong and to cease from doing it. Now there's a real fancy theological term for that, isn't there? Repentance. Do you see that? It's called repentance. It's examining your own heart. Examine your own heart. Don't blame the other person. Find out what is wrong. What's wrong in your own heart and confess it. Turn away from it. Quit before the quarrel breaks out. Stop it. You see what God's Word is doing here? It's actually providing a pattern. It's couched in terms of what what happens, what we see in society today. We know what happens in our own society, how people blame each other. You don't need to look very far. You know it from your own experience. You know it from seeing even children playing or watching other adults interact and poorly. You remember saying it as a child, and you know that as an adult you've done the exact same thing. And don't get me wrong, I include myself in that group. If anyone thinks that I'm not or I'm trying to portray myself otherwise, ask my wife or kids. They'll quickly relieve you of that belief. You may not have started it. You may use that line because it, you won't use that line because it sounds so childish. He started it. But it's immature. You found other ways to say the exact same thing. And what does the Word of God teach us? It gives us a pattern, a way in which we provide instruction to our children to know what repentance is. Because ultimately it's not so important their relationships on the horizontal level, how they relate to other kids, how they relate to their friends and family, as it is how they relate on the vertical level to God. It is important how they relate to others, but not as important as how they relate to God. And we're training our children with a pattern so they know what to do. And knowing what to do means when I'm confronted with my sin, when God shows me my sin, I know how to respond. Their mind has already been laid down with a pattern by faithful parenting, by godly parents who've provided examples and dealt with issues. But they have not said to their children, well, because he started it, go back and get get your own. That's the way of the world. The Christian says, I'm guided by the word of God. That means you need to examine your own heart. The other person may very well have sinned against you and done a greater 
done greater sin to you, caused more damage. But still, you have to look at what you've done in that interaction. That's not the issue we're dealing with. We're dealing with what's on your heart. You see the pattern that's laid down again? We're dealing with the experience of our children growing up and teaching them when God speaks to them of their sin, they'll know what to do. And what are they to do? Examine their own hearts. And in examining their own hearts, they confess to themselves to be sinners, they cease from it, they turn away from their sin, and they embrace the offer of salvation. There's a verse or two from the Sermon on the Mount, if you first read it, you might even turn to Matthew 5 as we go through this. When you first read these verses, it seems kind of out of place. The opening chapter of Matthew 5, Jesus talks about how he's come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. We talked about that in our reading of the law this morning. In doing so, he gives examples of how the law is to be read and understood and applied. Now, he only goes through a few of the Ten Commandments. We might have wished that he'd gone through all of them, but he only goes through a few. And the first one he talks about is anger. He says, if you think it's okay to curse someone, says Jesus, you have it, you've heard it said you shall not murder, but if you get angry, you're risking hellfire. And then next, there's this kind of strange verse. It, it seems a little out of place, but if you look at the whole context, you'll see it's really not. It says, if someone has an accusation against you, if you're going to court with your accuser, then get reconciled. Otherwise, you're going to be thrown into prison and you will never get out, not until you have paid the last penny. So how does that fit in when you have murder and anger and then all of a sudden you're talking about going to jail? Well, it's in the context of Jesus dealing with the law and the Ten Commandments. The next thing he talks about is adultery, committing adultery in our hearts. And what is Jesus doing in between dealing with those different commandments, talking about the accuser? It's a context of dealing with the law. Who's the accuser in that context? The accuser is God himself. So he says, be reconciled with your accuser because otherwise he will toss you into prison and you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. If our debt is infinite, how long will it take you to pay off an infinite debt? Jesus could have ended that sentence earlier on. He could have said, you'll never get out. Ever. What is Jesus telling us? We live in the day of gospel grace. Jesus is standing standing with his arms open to receive sinners. And we need to make our children aware of that. And we need to remind ourselves of that too. Because we've all played the blame game. We've all wanted to avoid examining our own hearts. So this morning we don't take the easy way out. We ask the Lord to show us our sins. Others may be greater sinners. There's no doubt there are some. But for our own sins... Be reconciled while you're still on the way, lest you be thrown into prison and never get out. Let's pray. Our gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the wisdom of your word. We would pray that even more of our unconverted friends and neighbors would see the wisdom of your word, and even though they be unconverted, that they would see that it will bless them and bless their children. We ask, Father, that we, not be, <clears throat> that we may not be superficial in our understanding, applying to our children or others, but in applying to our own hearts, 
as those who would not avoid the difficult work of confessing our own sin and turning from it. Father, we pray that even as we recognize that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, that this is a day of grace and that we'll, while we are on our way to court, if we be unconverted, if we would respond in faith, seek forgiveness and be reconciled with you for all our faults, failings, and all of our sins. Deal with us, Lord, according to your loving kindness and hear us, hear us pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.